Welcome to Lines from Loganberry, a show where we, your friendly local neighborhood booksellers at Loganberry Books, talk to authors to learn what makes their books tick. This week, Asila Sharif of Cleveland's Karamu House Theater interviews author Cassine Gaines on his new book, Footnotes, The Black Artists Who Rewrote the Rules of the Great White Way. They discuss the story and legacy of the groundbreaking 1921 musical Shuffle Along, the first African-American Broadway hit, and exactly how the creators behind it became forgotten in the mainstream pop consciousness. All of this and more this week on Lines from Loganberry. So my name is Asila Sharif. I am here at the Karamu House, and I'm really, really excited to be having this conversation this evening with Kasim Gaines, author of Footnotes. I want to start by reading your bio. Author and journalist Kasim Gaines has appeared in Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair. He holds an MA from Rutgers University in American Studies, focusing on racial representations in popular culture. He is the award-winning author of several books that explore the lasting impact of significant moments in arts and entertainment. His work has been praised by media outlets around the world, including NPR, The Hollywood Reporter, and Esquire. Kassin directs theater and teaches literature and writing, drama, journalism, you are busy, and a course on race and representation at a high school in New Jersey where he lives. Welcome, sir. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here with you. How are you this evening? We're really glad to be with you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Kassin, I want to jump right in if that's okay with you. Sure, let's do it. All right, so for those of us who are new to or not as familiar with, what is Shuffle Along and why is this show so important? Yeah, so uh, Shuffle Along is, first of all, it's the show at the center of my book, Footnotes, but it is a show that was produced in 1921 in Manhattan, and it was the first all-Black Broadway show to succeed on Broadway. And so when I say succeed, it's a show that actually lasted for 504 performances. It completely changed the look and sound of the theater industry. It introduced syncopation and jazz music to Broadway. It introduced a woman's dancing chorus. Uh, prior to Shuffle Along, women were on stage primarily as ornamentation, not as actual dancers and singers, um, and certainly not Black women. And it actually ended up catapulting the careers of some people like Josephine Baker, who was in the chorus of Shuffle Along. So it was an amazing phenomenon in 1921 that has largely been forgotten uh, from musical theater history, but it is incredibly important. And um, I'm so excited to help tell the story of the artists behind this production for the centennial this year. Now I'm going to put a pin in that Josephine Baker because we're going to we're going to jump into her a little bit later. Okay. I do want to ask you um, or, or share. So Caramel House here in Cleveland, Ohio, we're in the Fairfax neighborhood of Cleveland. We did a co-pro with um, local organization, the Musical Theater Project, and we did a show called The Impact of Shuffle Along, where the show is kind of arts and entertainment. So we called it an entertainment show. The Musical Theater Project is known for that work. They actually ran a, uh, won a Grammy for program notes uh, from a CD that they did uh, uh, that accompanied the production. So we, we've learned so much. Our audience has learned so much and enjoyed how much they took away from that experience of watching and learning about that show. Talk to us about you know, the show's creators, uh, Noble Sissel and UB Blake. What was their relationship like? How did they even come to meet? Sure, so I love Noble Sissel and UB Blake as characters because to me they were sort of like an odd couple a little bit. Noble Sissel was this college educated vocalist and also just a brilliant lyricist. I mean, if you look at the lyrics of these songs throughout Shuffle Along and not just Shuffle Along, but really the entire career that these two had working together, they were just really clever lyrics. And UB Blake, in contrast, was someone who was expelled from grade school. He was really a child prodigy who always was going to be a musician, even when he was three and four years old and wandered off into a store and started plunking on piano keys. He certainly had a gift. So these two met in 1915 in Baltimore and right away they hit it off. And it was sort of funny because Yubi was always focused on the next gig. He was never really thinking too far ahead. He just really was interested in the here and now and how he can succeed at that moment. And when he met Noble Sissel and realized that he was college educated, which was, there weren't a lot of college educated folks 
where Yubi was in Baltimore, he immediately said, you're the person I need to write songs with so that we can have a hit. And Noble Sissel was happy to oblige. And within about six months of working together, they had sold their first song to Sophie Tucker, um, a white vaudevillian who was a superstar of the day and uh, gave them their first shot. Yeah. I think I found their relationship in the way that you described their relationship in the book to be funny a lot of times, just the, the back and forth, the way that their, their different viewpoints were so distinctly different. So in your book, you span, you roughly span the eras of Black theater uh, performance from 1890 to 1940. We do spend a lot of time learning about um, the years before 1925. So I, you carefully and very thoughtfully laid out um, this very detailed history of what Black theater was like at that time. Why was it so important for you to provide that level of historical context? Yeah, I think um, when you're writing a book about, I mean, that's largely about a specific work, in this case, Shuffle Along, it, it was really important for me to sort of illustrate that Shuffle Along was an example, but not the example mm -hmm. of what Black artists contributed to the United States. So, you know, I spend some time in the beginning of the book talking about the works of Williams and Walker, who were really, and Ernest Hogan as well, I should probably acknowledge, who were really just like these godfathers of Black professional theater. And while their shows were a little bit more on the side of like vaudeville shows, just a touch, they really put the pieces in place that Cecil and Blake and Miller and Lyles, their, their partners on Shuffle Along, used to pick up and sort of carry this baton forward. Um, it was also important to kind of talk about this emerging state of Black theater before 1921, because when you had these sort of serendipitous deaths of Hogan and Ernest, or, or, I'm sorry, uh, Walker as well, when you had these deaths of these giants of the industry, you actually had a 10-year drought where no Black productions were on Broadway at all. And so you sort of have to establish what was there and what was lost to sort of make people hopefully to understand how unusual it was that this show emerged in 1921 with the strength that it had. Mm -hmm. Unusual is a great word for it and, and the strength of that work, yeah, it's undeniable. So, so you're speaking of, you brought up Miller and Lyles and you, you really introduced us to some amazing historical figures here. So not only are Cecil and Blake, you know, captivating, uh, Miller and Lyles, their partners, as you mentioned, are also captivating. And you also um, spend some time documenting the life of James Europe. Tell us about James Europe, his life as a musician, his life as a war, a war veteran. Tell us about this character. So here's like the funny story. I've, I've, never, I've never said this before, <laughs> but um, not even my editor knows this. But, you know, every time, Footnotes isn't my first book. I've written other books. But every time I write a book, there's a piece of the book where I kind of fall in love with like a, a part that's sort of like a little bit of a tangent. And for me, it was really uh, James Reese Europe that I just wanted to tell more and more and more of his story. And in fact, in the first draft, my editor said, I love all of this stuff about Jim Europe that you have in here. And you have to cut like 25 pages of it because we have to get to New York you know, <laughs> a little bit sooner. Um, but so James Reese Europe was just this fascinating figure. He to put it simply, he was a band leader, but really he was so much more than that. He had this crazy notion that Black musicians should be adequately paid for their work and also adequately treated on the job. And so he ensured that his musicians always had meals when they played a gig. They were paid a fair wage. They were all paid the same fair wage, that they portrayed respect and, and I should say respect, I should say dignity. And um, they were treated with dignity in terms of all of his musicians always performed in full tuxedos because he felt like that was a way to show that they weren't going to perform in blackface. They weren't going to sing songs about the old plantation. They were going to be treated as professional musicians, just like if you were going to Carnegie Hall and you were going to see, you know, white, musicians in the same fashion. And so um, he was just an amazingly dynamic person. And at the height of his career, when I say the height, his musicians were getting paid more 
than white musicians in New York for playing private events, he put it all on hold when the First World War came around. And you had people, thought leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois saying Black men should go and fight overseas because that's the only way that we are going to earn our humanity and full citizenship in this country. Certainly if we go overseas and come back, America will recognize what we have done for her. And that was not the case. A hundred years later, we know that that was not the case still, but Jim Europe really believed in that and inadvertently ended up bringing jazz and ragtime music to France through the 369th Infantry Regiment that he was a part of. And so he was just an amazing person. He's like the fifth main character of the book for me. Um, he's, you know, he's not in the whole book for reasons that people will discover when they read, um, but he, he hangs over the entire work and certainly over Shuffle Along, even though he had no direct impact on that show. I thoroughly enjoyed learning about him. Uh, he was new to me. Um, and I will say that, you know, learning about him and, and there were parts of the book I was listening to as well. And I was just having such response to like to, to his story and to who he was and to what he brought to the artistry. And so thank you for bringing that character. Oh were you listening to the audiobook? I was. Oh, so you were listening to, to my voice for 11 hours. <laughs> I got the audiobook to accompany my, my hard copy book. And I said, look, look okay, Cassine, I'm with you, sir. Oh my goodness, recording that was such an adventure. <laughs> I thought about that. I thought about that when you, I was like, I wonder what this was like when he was actually doing it. But uh, I, I enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you. I'm glad I haven't listened to it yet, but I, I'm glad that it turned out okay. <laughs> it did, it did. And I have to say, you know, on that, on that, as we're talking about the audiobook side, I got the audio to accompany uh, the physical book, as I said. And um, I was talking back to you the same way that folks back in the day used to talk back to TV. <laughs> I was like, what? No, I'm having all these very audible responses. I mean, I'm laughing at different points. Uh, like, uh, there's a part of the book where you're talking about the Ebony Five and the disbanding of the Ebony Five. I mean, I'm cracking up at some of these things I'm hearing. So, folks, you got to get the books so you can hear. And you know why I was laughing like this and having these responses. But one of the things that came up, I uh, was thinking about, you were talking about syncopated, syncopated uh, rhythms. And I was thinking about the syncopated argument mm -hmm. that was that wildly successful thing that who knew, you know, who knew that a syncopated argument was going to be this thing, this very, this timely rhythmic back and forth. And it made me think about call and response, mm -hmm. which is very, you know, very African in our tradition. So my question for you is, you know, what other, or were there other culturally specific elements of performance you learned mm -hmm. about? Um, or you discovered through this work of Cicely and Blake? Oh, wow. Uh, what a great question. Um, you know what I think I loved most was learning more about the origin of the cakewalk. Um, so the cakewalk, which was a big social dance in the or like the early 19, probably 1908. I might be a little bit off on the year with that, but around the, the early 1900s, uh, before 1910 for sure. And it was this very popular social dance and white people, white socialites loved doing this dance. It was, it was the Cotton Eye Joe of, of all the parties, you know? And so, um, but, <laughs> uh, no shade, no shade. But what I loved about it was that this was a dance that emanated out of the traditions of enslaved Africans who would imitate their slave owners by kind of putting on airs and over-exaggerating movements and imitating them. And the white slave owners never picked up on the fact that they were being imitated. And so they started to imitate the black folks imitating them. And it just sort of became this cycle. Um, and that's what I think is so incredible. You know, I was sort of thinking about there are all these stories about like John Wayne films where like the indigenous folks, the real, the actors who were actually indigenous, who were hired to be in those films would often just be told like, say something, say something native. And they would actually be like cursing out the, the white people that were also starring in the film in their native language, but no one knew it. You know, I felt like it was that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But I think that was really what was amazing, learning so much about the social dances of the day and just being able to trace their origins. And I think the other thing that I kind of want to mention too is while it's not specific to the show, 
I really wanted to make sure that the time period was really well established. And so I really looked at what was going on in not just New York, but in the South. I mean, like something like the Tulsa massacre was one week after Shuffle Along opened on Broadway. You know, so you have these two things kind of in conversation with each other, but separated by 900 miles. And so I think just learning about these other moments in our country's history that sort of intersected with the lives of Noble Sissel, UB Blake, Floyd Noe Miller, and Aubrey Lyles, that I think was what was most interesting to me overall. Yeah. Yeah, I love your elevation and your highlighting of those things, those culturally specific things that um, just kind of come out and you learn, you grab as you're learning about the story. Um, and to your point about the way that you, you drew these parallels around the country, what was happening and not just focusing in on New York and what they were doing. And their stories, their stories, uh, Cecil and Blake's stories took them, you know, all over. So love that you highlighted that. I'm going to take a, a detour here and I'm going to jump to Cleveland. So before we started the evening, you said that you've been to Cleveland many times, yes? Yes, at least, yeah, many times. Well, I shouldn't say many. I guess if you live in Cleveland, it's probably not many. The number of times I've been there, I think I've been there three times. <laughs> so I don't know if three counts as many, but uh, but I've been there at least three times. Okay, you've been. So I'm a, I was sharing with you that I'm a transplant, but I, you know, I love Cleveland and Cleveland is a, it's a beautiful city of neighborhoods. You know, these very dynamic neighborhoods where people can kind of find what they need there. And, you know, you can explore, but people have these beautiful neighborhoods. And so Caramu House, which is currently located in the Fairfax neighborhood of Cleveland, was actually first founded. This is our second location. We were founded um, in the central neighborhood. So as I was reading the book, I know that Noble Sissel also had a Cleveland connection. Talk to us about that. Yes, Noble Sissel went to high school in Cleveland and really grew up in Cleveland. And he left Cleveland. So it's funny, I mentioned in 1915, they met in Baltimore, uh, him and UB Blake, but he left from Cleveland, actually, um, which is sort of the interesting thing. So yeah, it, it's it's so serendipitous that he just took this gig out on the East Coast. But um, Noble Sissel went to the same high school that Langston Hughes graduated from. Cool kids. Central, right? I mean, is that central, right? Central. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Keeping all the facts in there, but yeah, central, which yeah. is crazy. Which, you know, and that's, it's like, it's so funny also thinking about, it just seems like there are some places around the United States that cultivate talent and, and, and or I shouldn't say, yeah, cultivate is the right word, that really cultivate and nurture and develop. And I really always think about what is going on, not just in those individual people, but I think it's also societal, right? I mean, like when we talk about it takes a village, you know, sometimes you hear about musicians that say like, I record in that studio because there's something about that studio or that location or that, you know, looking out the window that inspires me. And um, Noble Sissel certainly, certainly caught it in Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland's one of those places. I find that um, I was having some conversation, this before the world shut down. There was an artist from Chicago who came to visit Caramel House and we were talking about, she was talking about Rust Belt artists and that there was this, this thing about artists who were who kind of developed their crafts and cultivated what they got from their Rust Belt living experiences. So I, I agree with you that there's something too, I think, um, you know, about kind of what's, what gets in you when you're in a particular place and how that then affects the work you produce. So social justice, you know, Karamu, our, our work is under the umbrella of social justice, everything we do. I read this book and this book for me was like, so this is social justice personified, right? So, um, you know, in this story, we, we learn about Cecil and Blake wrestling with racial justice, they're wrestling with economic justice, they're wrestling with gender inequity and issues, and they always found a way to elevate, to, to rise above those, those challenges. What does their brand of tenacity look like um, in our contemporary world of art and entertainment? They were strong believers that they could change minds and attitudes if white people were just exposed to them and white people had the opportunity to see their talent. Um, and in fact, there's a, a great quote in the book from Du Bois talking specifically about Shuffle Along actually, where he is criticizing white theater owners throughout the United States for 
not booking Shuffle Along in major theaters. Shuffle Along played throughout the entire United States, but it was mostly independent theaters. And he said, you know, there is a diff there's two different kinds of prejudice and, and racial, racial prejudice, frankly. One being when it is purely based on ignorance and just not being exposed and not knowing. And the other is when you have the ability to expose other white people to black art and entertainment through something like Shuffle Along, which is clean family entertainment, a phenomenon of the United States, and you choose not to do it. And when you choose not to do it, that is more incendiary. One who is merely ignorant certainly can't be faulted in the same way that one who knows better and chooses to not do better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Noble Sissel's father was a minister. He wanted his son to be a minister. And ultimately his father did not live long enough to see the success that his son had with Shuffle Along and beyond. But Noble Sissel certainly felt like his ministry was his art. And that if he could just play for white people, they would at some point in time realize that Blacks aren't barbarians, that Blacks can entertain and make them laugh and make them cry and not just be on stage to make them laugh, but making them laugh at the appropriate time and for the appropriate reason when the Black performers were in on the joke as well, they could do that as well. And so they really felt like their existence was resistance in a sense. And I think the other thing that um, Noble Sissel in particular doesn't get enough credit for is he actually formed the Negro Actors Guild, which was this amazing consortium of actors that he was actually the first elected president of this organization. And they really fought for better representation of Blacks on screen. This is in the 1950s. Better representation of Blacks on screen, more Blacks to be in major motion pictures for healthcare for Black actors. And so he was always very concerned. I mentioned before that UB Blake was very concerned about the day, but wow. Noble Sissel was very concerned about the future and doing his part to make sure that the next generation of performers had it better than he had. Yeah, I found them to be absolutely unapologetic in who they were and how they were going to be seen. And I really, I took pride in that. You were speaking earlier about, you know, the, the way that they always, they dressed in a very professional way. And they were only going to be seen the way they felt like they needed to be seen. They weren't going to allow someone to take them outside of who they were. And so I really appreciated that and you highlighting that um, in the story. Um, you were talking about, you know, Black audiences and white audiences and how the show, you know, where the show played, locations. I enjoyed, I'm going to get circle back to this, I really enjoyed celebrating the men in this book, you know, these, histor these historical amazing men. And I also want to thank you for um, giving us an opportunity to celebrate Black women in this book as well. There was one such incident in Chicago during the Red Summer where some Black women activists kind of held the line. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Oh, yeah. So that's a great story. So the the performance of um, it wasn't it was the 369th Infantry Regiment Band. So when they when they went to France, they came back home. They were celebrated as heroes, you know, in the United States, especially in New York. And the artists were like, "We still have these uniforms. These are ours. We we earned them. We're going on tour as an army band everywhere." And so when they went to Chicago, they were told, uh, well, the theater owner said that this was going to be a segregated performance in terms of the seating. And the Black folks in Chicago, and, and I have to be fair here, a lot of white allies as well said, we're not going to stand for this. And they had people that printed up leaflets and they were handing up leaflets saying, boycott the show, boycott the show, boycott the show. And Ultimately, the day of the show, there was a line of Black women that made a chain, a fence around the theater, stopping people who tried to break the picket line and go in to the theater. And ultimately, it was just about a dozen people 
in this, this beautiful old opera house that were able to get through and the theater owner came out and cursed them out and the black women just clap right back at the, the white theater owner. And, you know, it just, it, it's funny because like, I think there are so many moments like that in footnotes that I really wanted to sort of bring out and elevate because it is very, I'll say easy to sort of tell a story of whether it's black trauma or exclusively black joy, you know, I, certainly when I was in school, and obviously we are having a national conversation now about how to correct this, but when I was in school, it was slavery to civil war to reconstruction to Jim Crow, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and the rest is history. You know, there wasn't even, there wasn't even Obama, you know, at the time, obviously. And so that was it. Everything was over at, at Dr. King. And we just sort of glossed over the assassination part. The March on Washington was the big thing. And I think it's important to remember that Black history, like all history, is about moving forward and moving backwards and sometimes at the same time. But ultimately, even in this story that is a story of segregation and racism, there were Black activists and Black women activists, especially, that were out there physically putting their bodies on the line just to essentially do their small part to desegregate a theater. I mean, when you think about really what it boils down to, it was all about desegregating a theater in one city in the United States. But Again, that is an example of what was taking place at that time, not the only example. And so it's important to sort of bring out these stories so that we know it's great what everyone's doing now, but they are standing on the shoulders of giants who have done it before them. And, you know, knock wood, hopefully not forever and ever, but it'll continue. That's right. Thank you for looking that up. Shout out to Black women and shout out to those allies who held it down in Chicago that summer. So there's another Black woman I'd like to talk about here whose career was launched uh, with Shuffle Along, and that is the Queen, Josephine Baker. Queen Josephine. Talk to us about Josephine. Josephine, Josephine had a hard time back in, uh, <laughs> when she auditioned for the show in 1921. Well, here, here's the first thing that we need to talk about with Josephine Baker. At 15 years old, which is when she auditioned for the show, she had lived a lot of life by 15 years old. She had been married twice by 15 years old. She, uh, she grew up in St. Louis. She was out in Philadelphia when she auditioned for the show, uh, when they were on their pre-Broadway tour. She had just been living on the streets. She was kind of emaciated, frankly, and, um, but she wanted to make it. She wanted to perform. She knew that that's what she wanted to do. That's what she was born to do. And when she auditioned for the show, she was rejected for a couple of reasons, one being her age, but one also being her skin color. And this was something that mortified her in real time. And I have to say, actually, this is like a little bit of like a process point, but I think it's really important to mention in putting a book like this together, I'm drawing from all sorts of sources. And this was a story that I thought was fascinating because I actually was blessed to have both Josephine telling this story in her own words wow. and also having Noble Sissel in an unpublished memoir of his that I had access to telling this same story, both of them. And the stories lined up so perfectly where she left dejected, she was offended, she was hurt. And that night, she made the decision that she was going to, she was like, forget it. I'm not, what am I doing here in Philadelphia? I'm going to where the action is. She spent her last few dollars on a one-way ticket to New York City, just with the clothes on her back and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. I'm not gonna have another person tell me my skin color is going to stop me. And of course, you know, there were people throughout the rest of her career that that did tell her that her skin color was a limitation, but she had the wherewithal. Well, actually, I should mention she did end up 
finding her way into the cast and company of Suffer Along. Um, I won't say how, but it's a it's a great it's a great story. But you'll have to you'll have to read it for yourself that one. But she gets into the cast, and ultimately she becomes the highest paid chorus girl of any color in the United States from being in the show. And I think what is most striking to me is that there's a direct line between her work with Cicel and Blake and her getting the offer to go to France to star in a review, she takes the opportunity. And at some point when they were staging a revival of Shuffle Along in the early 1930s, she was asked to partake in it. And she said, you know, I, I feel more comfortable as a black American in the white man's world of Paris than I do in my own country. You know, and if that isn't a, an indictment of the United States, I don't know what is, you know, yeah. but, um, but she was able to find, frankly, a level of fame and success abroad um, that she probably would not have found at that point in time as a, you know, caramel skin black girl in the 1920s, even in, you know, liberal New York. Yeah, agree, agree. We'll continue to say her name. She is the stuff that legends are made of. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to go to two of the other important male figures that you write about here. So Flournoy Miller and Aubrey Lyles. And we know that they were very popular, successful comedians, Black audiences, white audiences, it did not matter. They performed in Blackface. Tell us a little bit about their routines, you know, the backlash they, they, they had to deal with, their influence on early television. Talk to us about them. Sure. So first, I, I'll, I'll mention the, the blackface since, since you brought it up. And it's a significant aspect of the show. And it's, it's interesting because the blackface comedy that Miller and Lyles did in the show was really, I, I really think it is part of the reason, a large part of the reason why Shuffle Along has never been revived on stage in its mm. original iteration in the last hundred years. Because in 1952, then I'll jump back, but in 1952, um, there was a revival of the show that Pearl Bailey was set to star in. And she knew about Shuffle Along just because she was a black performer. And at that point it wasn't that far removed. And uh, she agreed to star in it. And then when she was presented with a script, she actually made a very public declaration that not only was she going to withdraw from this project, but she did not think anyone should see this project because mm. it was degrading. It was a dark part of Black history and shows like Shuffle Along are better left in the vault and we should not say, say its name, essentially. So when I think about Miller and Lyles, I think about people like Hattie McDaniel, an amazing performer who was not a domestic, was not a maid, she was an actress. She won an Academy Award, the first black woman to win an Academy Award in Gone, for Gone with the Wind in 1939. Oh. But whether it's Hattie McDaniel, whether it's Stephen Fetchett, whether it's, um, Billy Thomas, who we know better as Buckwheat from the Little Rascals, whether, you know, there are a whole line of Black performers that at some point, I will say for a legitimate reason, I mean, for understandable reasons, in the name or in the sake of social justice and social progress, we say like, take those movies off TV. I don't want to talk about that. Like, that's like, that's not something that I want to show my kids or whatever the case may be. But in doing that, you end up ignoring that those people and forgetting that those people opened the doors for folks like Pearl Bailey to be That's on right. Broadway in the first place. And so Miller and Lyles were really the brain, um, it was really Miller more than Lyles, they were the brainchild of Shuffle Along. And they had an act that was just like the odd couple as well. Flournoy Miller was this tall, uh, light-skinned guy. Aubrey Lyles was short and dark-skinned, and they would just go at it. They were almost like Laurel and Hardy or like Amos and Andy. And um, in fact, Amos and Andy were sued by Miller and Lyles for plagiarizing their act. 
And ultimately, how they got the suit to be dropped was Miller and Lyles were offered their own radio program. And so were they paid the same? No. Were they, did they have the same distribution? No. But they took it because it was an opportunity to have their work seen. And they actually seeded all of their best material to the white performers who were Amos and Andy over the radio. And Miller and Lyles had to come up with all new routines for the radio. So, you know, Miller is such an interesting character because I think through the lens of history, he can really be seen as someone who um, did a made a lot of concessions to the sensibilities of white people. But he, I would say, just as much as Noble Sissel, was always thinking about how his work could be in front of as many eyes as possible and how mm -hmm. they can make as much money as possible because his main goal was starting the first Black-owned theater on Broadway that would produce Black-centric work. Not just a Black-owned, but he was very specific in that it was going to tell Black stories and Blacks were going to be at the center of those stories and that they would employ white actors if need be, but they would be supporting characters to help tell stories and ultimately he just never had the financing to make that happen and there are still no black owned theaters on broadway today yeah wow 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 you just dropped like a fifty thousand bombs in that so. <laughs> you you put something on my mind though as we talk about you know those artists or those works that we cast aside for whatever they do for us, however they trigger us or make us uncomfortable. And, and our inability to deal in that discomfort, you know, it takes away the witness. Mm -hmm. And so that witnessing is very important. So you, you, you've given, I hope all of us something to think about there with that. You mentioned uh, kind of the culture vulturing, as I call it, that appropriation that we experience over and over again, we've been experiencing as you're detailing here. So, you know, in the book, in footnotes, you, you lift up the success of these very Black artists. Um, you talk about this very significant economic impact of this show, this Black-written, Black-performing, Black-focused, Black-centered show. You know, we even know that traffic patterns were changed on Broadway because of the run of the show. So you share that it's yes about the location Broadway, but it's even more about this economic impact, this revenue generation, what they were able to do financially. You talk about financial arrangements between performers and their, their agents, the record companies, all these, the theater owners, everybody. But talk to us a little bit or explain, you know, how these black performers were also routinely underpaid or the work was continuously stolen. Like what, what was that? Yeah, so from an economic standpoint, you know, one of the things that was very specific to Shuffle Along was that the four Black artists who wrote the show owned 50% of the show. I mean, that is unheard of. That's unheard of today. You know what I mean? Like, like no one owns 50% of, like maybe Oprah gets those deals. No one gets those deals. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing that for that show, they had that. And for every subsequent show that they had done, and actually I should take a step back here for a moment and say, the reason why they had it actually is because no one thought the show was going to succeed, you know? So it was easy, it was easy to give it. But then when Shuffle Along was such a phenomenon, every show that they did subsequently, because all four of those men had multiple Broadway shows under their belt by the time they died. They always were hired hands. So they would get a salary, a good salary of maybe $225 a week or something like that, but they never had the same economic interest that they had in that first production. And in some cases, they actually sold off their shares of Shuffle Along so that they could sort of have seed money for subsequent productions or just be able to eat. Because even though they were well-established artists, I mean, I can't overstate how popular these four men were, they still, three out of the four of them filed for bankruptcy at some point in time. All Everyone except for UB Blake, who literally UB Blake would play in someone's living room for $3 if you let him. I mean, he would just, he would make money however he could um, and he, he made it work. But, um, you know, 
it's interesting because even if you look at going back to Jim Europe, his music was so incredibly successful. And yet he was aware and spoke amazingly publicly, you know, frankly, for being a Black performer in, you know, 1915, 1916, for saying there are white artists that have songs that have sold thousands of fewer copies than I have who have made more money from those songs than my work that are played in every dance hall, every private event, copies fly off the shelves because I get a cent, one cent for every copy sold and a white musician would get a dime oh. for every copy sold. Oh. And so it wasn't just about the sale of music. It was even extended to when they were touring they would often have their hotel accommodations dropped because when they would show up and try and you know get you know get their room, they would be told, "Oh, so sorry, actually, we're there's no vacancy. You know, the the thirty rooms that we said we had, we don't have any of them, not oh. even one. You know, they would be charged more at restaurants." And Noble Sissel and UV Blake, in particular, always sort of took these on the chin, I think, um, and said, you know, look, it's a, it's a small price to pay for what we get to do every night. And wow. there are white folks coming to see our show. And that's going to turn, um, that's going to turn the, the society at some point in time. So wow. it's, it, yeah, it was always a complicated dance. And, you know, the, the four of them, never really got the um, the financial flowers, you know, frankly, the, the economic success that they were, that they were justly due. So when I think about artists, Cassine, I think of artists and culture bearers as, you know, the archive, right? I, I see the artists and the culture bearers as, you know, the artistic products they leave behind. I see those things as, uh, for the future world, they're saying someone was here. Mm -hmm. This is the story. So when you think about that and you think about um, Beyond Shuffle Along um, and, and some of those other productions that these artists, these, specifically these four, Cicel and Blake and Miller and uh, Lyle, you got it, you got it. What, do, what do their legacies leave with us? I think their legacies leave, I called the book Footnotes because as I was writing it, I just kept thinking, we tend to think that everything that we are building today will last forever. Mm -hmm. That a hundred years from now, people will know who Beyonce was. How are they gonna forget the Lemonade album? <laughs> they will, you know, <laughs> they will. And I'm sorry to say it, but they will, you know? Someone out there listening went, Lemonade, oh yeah. Like someone did it already, <laughs> sorry to say. And so, you know, for me, it was really looking at all of these artists that, I mean, there are so many artists that are name checked in this book, whether it's the Black Patty, whether it is, um, I mentioned a bunch of, Freddie Washington is someone that we haven't spoken about. Like there are just a bunch of people that are just permeating through this, this book. And they are names that I don't think the everyday person knows. I mean, yeah. honestly, Josephine Baker, who I have so much respect and love for, you know, I teach high school students. I wonder how many of my high school students know who Josephine Baker is. Mm -hmm. I would like to think many of them. I don't think many of them, though. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what the legacy is of these four individuals, I just think what has lasted is their work, even if we don't know of their work. What has lasted is the way that they have changed theater. You know, I'm sitting next to a copy here of, this is from 1921, the sheet music for I'm Just Wild About Harry. And this is a song that everyone's familiar with this song. And yet no one remembers that this song is from Shuffle Along, that Black artist wrote it, that this is what the sheet music looks like for this song. This is from 1921. That's amazing. It's, it's astonishing. And we've heard this song from Daffy Duck, Al Jolson, Judy Garland, Carmen Miranda. Like we've heard this song so much. 
And this song, which was ultimately used for Harry Truman's presidential reelection campaign. I mean, that these Black artists wrote a song that was helped reelect Harry Truman to the presidency, but we disassociate the work from these artists. Yeah. And so when I thought about the title, I just thought about if you are lucky, if we are lucky, what we do lasts, the things that we say last, the way that we make people feel last. We push our hands into the wet cement of history in some way, even if the name of who put their hands in the cement wasn't written in the cement, yeah. you know? And so while these artists may be footnotes in someone's history book, people say the footnotes of a book sometimes are the most interesting part. Yeah. And so I just thought what an amazing conceit in a sense to say, not only do I think these might be the most interesting parts of history, but also, I'm just going to give you a book of all these people that you may not know or may not have remembered, but make up this American history um, that is a part of all of our history. And so that's really what I think their legacy is, is just their work that we get to read about in this book. I love that. I absolutely love that. So I have to ask you, is there anything that you want to share that readers, people who are listening, should know that we didn't get to cover? You know, I have, yeah, two quick things. First is, and then I have a question for you, if that's okay. So I don't, can okay. I break the rules? Can I ask you? I'm gonna ask you my question first. Because we were talking about Cleveland as a place that like cultivates artists. And I know that you are an artist and you mentioned that you are a transplant to Cleveland. And so I am curious about how you feel Cleveland has changed you since you have been there in terms of your art? Great question. Some of that I think is found in Cleveland. I think some of it, my response is found in just uh, growth and development, but which some of it was supported here. Cleveland has a, there's an energy here. There's um, a boldness, a, a lack of patience for inauthenticity. There is encouragement for truth telling, for witnessing and bearing witness. And I feel like when you're, I think I've been encouraged and inspired by artists who are just telling their truth, calling things like they see it, speaking to whatever those realities are and, and putting forward work that doesn't necessarily have to agree with anyone else's timeline, but it really speaks to truth about real circumstance, real people. Um, people are unapologetic about the way that they create that work here. And I think being an artist living here, you know, my, I'm, my discipline is dance. And there's the courage to say what I need to say through my artwork. So, you know, now I've been spending these last few years really focused in as an arts administrator. You know, that, that's a different set of stuff than it takes to, to be on the creative side. So there is there creativity in my work, sure. Um, but it's, it's very different than my, my dance creation or you know how I create work that way. But when I have the space and create the space to do that work, to create through dance, through movement, um, I find that I am, I only want those truths to come out in the work that I do. That's been an important part of me being here, of me continuing to come back here. Because I've come and gone a few times. I keep coming back. Keep and it back. really is the arts. It's the arts community. That's There's a siren that. song that you must hear. That's yeah. <laughs> it's the arts community that has done that for sure. Thanks for the question. No, of course. So the two things I wanted to mention, number one is if you have not gotten footnotes yet, get it at Loganberry, please get it at Loganberry. That's the one thing I just wanted to stress. I've got, I've got it here. I've got it here. Let me tell you something. If I didn't have it, I would be going to Loganberry book. To Loganberry, that's right. So, uh, so definitely, definitely do that. And the other thing I just wanted to mention, because we were talking before about um, the importance of bearing witness, which I thought was just a really good point. And I wanted to say in 2002, there were the inklings of staging a revival of the original 1921 Shuffle mm -hmm. Along. 
um, a white producer, um, Jack Bertel, was going, and he's a he's a giant. He's like, you know, he's not a nobody. He's like a big, huge guy in New York theater community. And um, he was interested in staging it as an archival, historical, like, you know, with the proper context. But he was concerned about how the Black community would respond. And so he reached out to August Wilson to pick his brain. And August Wilson actually had, I thought, just such a great take on this, which is not surprising because I think August Wilson is just a genius. August Wilson said, just as you, you were saying before, Asila, that like, it might make people uncomfortable to see Shuffle Along in its original iteration. And that's okay if it does. And you may even be criticized for staging it. And that's okay if you are. But there is a value, not only for Black folks to know this show was there, but also for white folks to know this is what Black folks had to do to gain acceptance in their own country. Yeah. Mm. And so if, if you are uncomfortable with it, that's okay. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah. Jack Verdell decided to not stage it. Hmm. And so that just it it you know that story sort of speaks for itself or raises its own questions or whatever. But that's uh the only the only thing I wanted to circle back to from our conversation before because I thought it was such an important point and I wanted um August Wilson to weigh in on that conversation as well. I'm so glad that you did. It has been a pleasure, my new friend. It has been a pleasure as well. I love this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, when you come to Cleveland, you gotta let us know. Absolutely, you know. absolutely, two hundred percent. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next time for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening.